Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together now. And bless us, I pray, as we work and as we study together. Help us in all that we do to grow to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ, for whose precious name's sake we ask it. Amen. Well, we've got quite a lot to get through uh, today, at least on paper. Um, the last two chapters of uh, First Timothy. Uh, but I hope to show you that although it looks like a lot, it's actually, uh, it makes sense to do it like this. It's not uh, as much as it might appear. Uh, what Paul is doing now is he's looking at the church. He's sort of going through who who is in the church. Uh, you know, what kind of people are there? Uh, how do you minister to them? How do you deal with them? How, where does it, where do the different groups fit? So we see, first of all, what's, how he thinks of the church. You know, what kind of people are there? And, uh, how do you then deal with them, uh, and their particular needs? Uh, and what we see, so I'll just read the first couple of verses of chapter five. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So we see here uh, that Paul sees the church, sees the, the minister in the church as a kind of family, uh, that uh, older people you treat as, as, as your parents, as you would your parents, uh, and younger people you treat as you would your brothers and sisters. I'm not sure that that's always necessarily, <laughs> you know, a wonderful thing, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, it, it's meant to be, uh, it's meant to have a sort of family feel uh, to it. It's interesting how he divides. You see that, he, first of all, the, the, he divides according to, to sex, to gender, which is obvious, or it used to be anyway. Um, and uh, <laughs> you should be careful nowadays what you say. Um, and according to age. Uh, so that I think we can, we can assume the gender thing is a given. Um, but the age is that rather interesting because who counts as old and who counts as young? Uh, and this is actually quite important as we go through this uh, chapter, uh, because the next long section is to do with widows, and of course the age factor comes in. Um, this is difficult, uh, more difficult than it might appear. We know, of course, that Paul was an older man writing to Timothy, who was a younger man, and the, the tone here uh, suggests very clearly that he's talking to Timothy and saying to Timothy, well, the older people you treat as your parents and the people your age, the sort of you know, younger people you treat as, as your brothers and sisters. Well, that seems to be fairly clear. Uh, but uh, deciding who belongs in what category is not an easy thing. Um, you know, I mean, who is old and who is young? Uh, and where does the transition come, you see, in the, in the middle? Of, when, when do you move from one to the other? Now, of course, in some cases it's obvious, uh, you know, um, uh, who is who is old and who is young? Uh, we, that, that that's quite clear. Um, but uh, but there's that in between uh, group that you you know you don't really know where they belong, um, uh, one thing and another. So we'll see this as we uh, as we go through, because the next bit it says honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren. Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. 
but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right, well, a little bit of context here. First of all, the ancient world, uh, and indeed modern world to a large extent, but certainly in ancient times, um, worked on uh, the extended family model. Very, very few people were genuinely alone. I mean, you would get the odd person, uh, you know, as Paul uh, evidently uh, points out here. But on the whole, most people had relatives. And of course, it was important to have relatives because there was no social security net. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you were dependent uh, on your family, uh, on your wider family for, for, uh, for support, for sustenance, particularly older people. Uh, you know, they depended on their children or grandchildren or whoever um, for living. I mean, they, they, there was nobody else to look after them. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the odd person, uh, you know, who there may be, who does not have anybody, uh, you know, for whatever reason, um, then, of course, the church must take care of that person because the, the church is their family. Uh, but if you have members of your own family, and you, in your own family, you must look after them. That is a primary responsibility. And it's important not only because of the commandment, honor your father and mother, but because there was a there was a possibility in a Jewish culture, as we know from reading the Gospels, um, they'd worked out that uh, you could get around this regulation uh, by giving a, a cash payment to the temple at Jerusalem, and this was called korban. There was an actual name for it, and if you did that, you, that kind of excused you from the duty of having to look after your parents. Uh, when they got old. You see, that was the, that was a kind of a way around the law. And Jesus condemned this. Uh, he said, you know, you must look after your parents, so look after people in your, your family in this way. If you don't do this, um, you are, of course, breaking the law. And as Paul says here, uh, this is being worse than an unbeliever. Now, of course, today, this is still, you know, I uh, a factor in the, in the way we live. I mean, obviously, we live differently, and some needs are different, and provision is different, and so on. But we still think that it's important, uh, you know, to look after elderly relatives and elderly family, and so on. And of course, we know that it's not altogether easy all the time. Um, the interesting thing here is that uh, although Paul talks at some length about widows, he doesn't say anything about widowers. Uh, and uh, this is perhaps interesting. He talks about old men, but he doesn't say anything about widowers. Uh, and I think the, it's worth thinking about this for a minute because it helps to explain some of the things that he says later on. First of all, there probably weren't very many. Uh, I mean, men generally tend to die earlier than, than women anyhow. Uh, that's always been the case. Um, uh, so you would normally have more widows than, than, than widowers in a, in a church to begin with. That's the first thing. Uh, but the second thing is in ancient culture in particular, it was very common for men to marry women who were much younger than themselves. So there was nothing odd, uh, you know, about a 40 or 50 year old man marrying a 20 year old woman. Uh, you know, that, that was, that was common. Um, 
and, and normal in those days, uh, you know, in a way that, I mean, of course it can still happen today, but it's not the, the sort of thing that you would expect uh, as a matter of course. And so inevitably, when you have this, um, you're going to have a large number of widows uh, because uh, a woman who lives an, or an ordinary life uh, span, of course, will have a husband who is already uh, one foot in the grave when they get married. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, is how, how long is that going to last? And we see this, it's never said, it's never said in so many words, but if you look in the Gospels, for example, uh, and look at Mary and Joseph, you see, it, you get the impression that Joseph was a good deal older than Mary, uh, and certainly when Jesus has grown up and going on his, uh, starting his ministry, Mary is sort of there. She's obviously, you know, able to follow him around and so on. But you never hear a word about Joseph and you would tend to assume that he's died. I mean, it doesn't say that. Uh, but, you know, I think that's probably the impression that most people would have had, um, uh, you know, at the time listening to this. So that's the way it, it generally was. Uh, and it's important to understand this because to, to see what comes next, because then Paul gives advice about widows and the way he talks about them uh, to understand the, the, this situation, this background. He said, let a widow be enrolled, uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. All right, well, the basic idea, of course, if, if, if you don't need the help of the church, then don't, you know, rely on it. Don't de depend on this. That we understand. But there are a lot of questions we have to ask here, a lot of rather strange things that, uh, that Paul says that we need to think about. First of all, he draws the line at the age of 60. That, you know, if a woman is over 60, that's fine. She can, you know, be put on the roll. They kept a roll of widows, uh, you know, people who, who needed the, the help of the church and so on. So a woman of 60 years or more, um, that no problem there. Uh, the only difficulty, of course, and again, we tend to forget this, is that people in ancient times often did not know how old they were. Um, well, because there weren't records, you see. I mean, today... Uh, you go anywhere. I mean, the first thing they ask you is your date of birth. Uh, I mean, I, I went to the hospital a couple of weeks ago, so I needed to get some uh, tablets and so on. And I was asked this question about five or six times. And I thought, they maybe thought I, I was lying or, I, you know, what, what if on the fifth time I'd given a different date? <laughs> you know, they're trying to catch me out <laughs> on this one. But, 
but people in ancient times didn't know. Uh, and of course, uh, well, you know, they might have had some vague idea, of course, and they might have been told things like, well, you know, you were born the day the comet appeared or, you know, something like this. I mean, there would be some uh, natural phenomenon that would be uh, they would be reminded of. But precise dating in this way uh, would be unknown. I mean, you, you would never, I mean, I'm sure nobody turned up at the church and said, well, I'm 59, I'll be turning 60 next week, do I have to wait for a week to be enrolled? I mean, I don't think there'd be that kind of thing. This is a sort of general thing. But what is what makes me think this even more is, see, Paul says, well, let the younger ones marry and have children. Well, uh, okay, but uh, it's general was generally assumed in the in the ancient world that a woman of forty was past her childbearing age. Now that might not have been entirely accurate, but still, uh, you know, whatever age you have, there's a there's there's a gap here. Uh, I mean, what happens if you're a 55-year-old wid- widow? Uh, you're probably not going to have children again. Um, you know, do you marry uh, and so on? You know, because you're not yet 60. Uh, how how legalistic are you going to be in this particular case? And I think we have to conclude that these are generalities. These are sort of you know uh, basic principles, but there must have been a lot of in- exceptions in individual cases. What is more important, though, and we have to remember, is that the widow was legally an anomaly in ancient society. There were plenty of them around, that's true. Um, but when I say legally an anomaly, if we just take women, generally, forget the men for a minute, just take women, they were the freest women in ancient society. Why? because they were no longer subject to their husbands, husbands dead, uh, not subject to their parents, probably dead also, but still, you know, having gone, having left the family home for the, for the husband, they don't have to go back again. Um, so, uh, and of course, not subject to their children um, either. So they're free agents, relatively, you know, by, by ancient standards. Uh, and can do more or less what they want, well, not more or less what they wanted to do in one sense. But of course, the problem was, well, what exactly could they do? Because uh, women did not have legal status as as persons in their own right. Um, you know, a, a, a woman could not uh, function as a citizen, um, for instance. I mean, only men did, did this. And uh, there was definitely a gender bias uh, very strongly in society. So what's a widow of this, uh, this kind of person going to do? I mean, uh, you know, you, can't, you couldn't sort of just go out and get a job uh, or, or something like this. There was, no, there, there was nothing for them to do particularly. And so they were kind of uh, left, um, you know, in a sense. Now, of course, many of them would have found things to do. I mean, they would have moved in with their children or something like this. I mean, I'm not saying that there, there'd be nothing for any of them to do. Uh, that's true. But um, there was a certainly, and clearly here, a, a fairly large group of, of, of women, middle-aged women, um, who were kind of at a loose end. Um, you know, they, they had options um, in a way that most people didn't. Uh, but then what do they do? Uh, you know, and of course, you know, if you if you have nothing really to do and there's nothing you can do, uh, because you're so socially constrained for various other uh, reasons, 
then we know, you know, that idle hands are the devil's playground, and this is what we see here. Uh, I don't think that Paul is particularly uh, a male chauvinist or anything like that. It's just that you have this category of people that nobody quite knows what to do with, uh, you know, and they don't really know what to do with themselves either, you see. Um, and so you, you, you're kind of faced with this difficulty. Um, and it was a difficulty. I mean, even in relatively recent times, uh, I mean, if you go back to, say, the 19th century or something like that, when women were in a sim- similar position, I mean, they couldn't just go out and work and, and all that kind of thing. You did have this. I mean, the, the, the people like this. Um, you know, you read the novels of somebody like, uh, you know, the Bronte sisters or, or Jane Austen or something like that. I mean, these were women of that type, you know, who were in that kind of... Um, uh, no man, I say no man's land, uh, but you know, in that in that strange situation that they didn't really have legal status, but they, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't really live their own lives. You know what I mean? So I mean, we we have a freedom here in our society uh, which they didn't have. So we need to bear that in mind. But the question of of uh, marrying again, um, you see clearly when uh, in verse nine when Paul says that the widow of sixty. Um, is to be enrolled if she's been the wife of one husband. This cannot mean uh, someone who had lost her husband when she was very young and then remarried, uh, because, of course, that's what he goes on to advise. Uh, so he's, a, he's not against that. Uh, it must have something to do either with divorce or uh, you know, some kind of arrangement that wasn't uh, altogether uh, appropriate, uh, shall we say, for women in the church. It has to be something like that. But uh, it does raise other interesting questions because, um, of course, you see, we live in a society where uh, this kind of per- women uh, in particular dealing with here, but anybody really, men as well, um, we have a different approach to things like marriage and family. Uh, I mean, we tend to believe that you fall in love with somebody, marry them, and you know, sort of start a family. In the ancient world, that was very, very rare, and generally disapproved of, uh, because, well, because you see, marriages were a business. I mean, most people worked in their family, had a family business. I mean, Jesus grew up, you know, his father was a carpenter. Well, what did that mean? It mean, they worked at home. You see, the, 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 the workshop would be part of the home. Um, Paul was a tent maker. Again, where do they make the tents? Well, not in a factory. They made them at home, um, you know. So uh, you have this kind of, uh, this kind of situation uh, is what's going on. And so the question of who do you let into your home um, is also who do you let into your business? Uh, you know, who is going to sort of be connected in this way? And, and parents uh, generally try to, you know, find the right spouse for their children. Arranged marriages were very common um, and, and taken very seriously. Again, we see this with Joseph and Mary. Uh, you know, when Mary got pregnant and uh, unexpectedly and so on, this was a crisis, you see, and, and uh, you, you can just imagine, well, what's going on here, uh, you know, within that uh, context. So that also has to be borne in mind. But this is going to get, this gets very complicated. Um, 
because of this, you see, because of the, there was a very strong interest in keeping uh, keeping the family together, keeping the money and the, you know everything else uh, tied up in the business and so on. It's a very important thing, inherited from one generation to another. But at the same time, uh, you had to have laws, of course, against incest. I mean, you obviously couldn't marry your mother or your sister or your brother, uh, brother or whatever, uh, you know. Uh, and there were there were rules governing this. But how far did those rules extend? And it's interesting here. You see, it extends to the children and grandchildren, sort of mentioned. But what about the great grandchildren? That that wasn't covered. Now, of course, you see, this is interesting. This just shows a different mentality. You see, if you would think, well, who would marry their great-grandchild? Or who would marry their great-grandparent? You know, would you do this? Well, you and I probably wouldn't. You know, well, apart from anything else, said individuals are probably not available. You know, to go no, to go no further than that. But uh, you have to remember again. You see, you're dealing with a society where people married very young, and all people died young, of course, on average. But some people didn't. Some people did live uh, an ordinary life. So you uh, you could have a situation where you have an 18-year-old man whose mother is say 35, whose grandmother is maybe in her early 50s who has a great-grandmother around 70, 75, you see. So he could, of course, marry his great-grandmother. And you may think, well, what 18-year-old man would want to marry a great-grandmother in her early 70s? Well, maybe not the 18-year-olds that you know, but uh, you see, think to yourself, you see, if a man of that kind, sort of 18 years old, marries a woman of 70, who's a great-grandmother, what's the deal? You see, of course, he gets all her property. He becomes the, her legal representative. He cuts out the intervening generations. So grandparents and parents, forget it, you're not inheriting, you know, and this is a way of, uh, of skipping generations uh, in inheritance. Now, see, again, you and I don't think this way. I mean, some story like that for us would be in the National Enquirer or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we just don't take it seriously. But, but it was an issue uh, in ancient times. You won't believe this, but it was an issue. And in fact, it was debated for, for, for centuries uh, as to whether you could marry, uh, you know, to that degree because it wasn't actually forbidden. And you won't believe this, but the Roman Catholic Church didn't solve this problem until 1917, uh, when, yeah, when they finally said that you cannot marry in the direct line of descent, however many generations it might be. But as far as I know, the Protestant Church has never did that. And in common law, certainly in England, I don't know about here, it's not illegal to marry a great-grandparent or great-grandchild. Somebody could check that. I don't know whether it is or not. Uh, but technically, at least, um, those things could happen. And so, uh, you know, you have to keep this bigger picture in mind when you're reading this kind of thing, you know, in the text. That's really what I'm trying to say here.
Now, uh, get on to the next group of people. Let the elders who rule be well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure whether your clergy would be terribly thrilled if you compared them to oxen, um, but uh, that's the principle of the thing, isn't it, really? Uh, and it's clarified here that the, the laborer deserves his wages. That's true. What is interesting here is that the church seems to have been governed by a group of elders who would, theoretically at least, have been old men. But who were they? Uh, how were they chosen? See, this is one of those things which is never actually clarified in the text. Uh, probably, if you think of an average congregation, let's put it like this. If you have groups of people in the church, which we do, of course, and the old men go over there, and the old women go over there, and the younger ones go, you know, they kind of subdivide like this. It would be very difficult to exclude an old man from the eldership just because of the way things functioned. You know, I mean, they'd all be sitting around sort of chewing the fat, and you know what it's like. I mean, you know, they sit and discuss the Iron Bowl in 1935 and so on, and that's kind of a... That's kind of a thing which excludes the people anyway. I mean, kind of a self-exclusion because you don't remember that far back. Um, but this kind of society, you see, where everybody's, what are you going to do? Sort of say, well, you know, sorry, you can't join with this because, you know, you're not one of the elders. So you have to go and sit over there somewhere uh, while we have our meeting. Um, you know, you couldn't really do that. So you tend to assume, well, they presumably all the older men would, you know, would belong to the eldership somehow or other, whether it was formal or informal, uh, in the church. And what we see here is that uh, though that not all of them laboured in preaching and teaching, because uh, it says though they're worthy of double honour. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Strange words here. Um, the word honour uh, in Greek can also mean um, salary. Uh, same, you know. In other words, they're paid, uh, and this was a paid position um, in the church. And of course, it obviously makes sense because you shall not muzzle an ox, who, and, and the laborer deserves his wages. I mean, the context tells you that that's what it means. Um, you know, they're talking about pay, paying. So why they translate uh, worthy of double honor instead of worthy of double salary? I don't really know, but that's, uh, you know, that's basically what you're talking about here. Uh, but then he goes on to say, um, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. If you were given the responsibility of eldership in the church, if that was your position, certain things were expected of you. You see, it's interesting here that the, the greater the, the prominence you had, uh, the more responsible you were expected to be. Uh, and, uh, you know, if that didn't work for some reason, uh, there had to be some kind of discipline, some kind of, 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 of way of dealing with this. 
Now, what sort of accusations would have come up? Well, we immediately tend to think, uh, I suppose, in sexual terms. You know, these are men having affairs with other women, are they seeing prostitutes, what are they doing? Well, no doubt, if something like that were happening, um, that would come under discipline, of course. Uh, but I'm not sure that, see, Paul doesn't really stress that aspect very much. And looking down, we, we read through, I'm not sure that that was necessarily what was going on, um, at least not on a major scale. I think much more likely would have been shady business transactions. Um, because, uh, you see, you get this group of people together, and say, how can we do this? How can we manage that? How, you know, there's a kind of cooperative thing here, um, and one person covering the other person's tracks and so on. Um, I mean, now, of course, you, you call this the country club or something, but in those days, uh, it was a sort of eldership in the church. You know, there's this kind of networking um, that went on, and I think that's much more likely to have been the case, just given the nature of the society, um, cheating other people uh, one way or another, because that's what you're dealing with here. You see, you're dealing with, you know, uh, household businesses, uh, business people one kind or another. So that's probably the sort of shady dealings would be more likely to be the thing that is going on. But we don't really know. Uh, and of course, accusations that are made, uh, as we know, uh, anyone can make an accusation about anybody. Um, you have to have some kind of control over this. Uh, and, uh, and Paul is very clear about this. He said, you know, if you're going to deal with this, make sure that the accusations are not just from one person. It's not just a personal thing. Um, you know, somebody has something against somebody else. So there's something bigger than that. So there is discipline, but it's discipline meant to be as impartial as possible. And I say this is a very difficult thing to, to deal with because in our churches today, how do you discipline people? Well, you don't really. Um, you know, it's very, very hard to, to do this. And, um, I mean, I've uh, been involved in cases where, you know, people stealing money from the church. Well, if they have, a, you know, some kind of office, the church treasurer, treasurer or something like that, um, it's very hard to, A, to prove it. It's not easy because very few churches have, you know, detailed auditing systems and all that kind of thing. Um, and even if you do prove it somehow, you know, the, the, the uh, ramifications for the life of the church could be very, very difficult. And, you know, dealing with that sort of thing it, it could cause a lot of trouble. Uh, and knowing what to do is, is not uh, easy even now. So it's careful there. But then Paul says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Um, you know, and don't participate in the sins of others. This is why I think that it's shady business dealings, because don't participate in the sins of others it means don't get involved in this kind of thing. Uh, you know, it makes more sense. And don't appoint, this is the thing, don't appoint people, that's the laying on of hands, is ordination, um, whom you're not sure about. You know, uh, make make sure that the, well, it's the best you can. Of course, you can't always be be hundred percent sure of anybody, but uh, you know, investigate. Uh, don't just take the first person who comes along. Make sure that you're dealing with the right sort of person. Then he says he goes. He just throws this in. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
Timothy was obviously not a well person. And he had pro- this kind of thing, of course, was common in the ancient world, more so than today, because medicine was very primitive. And you went to the doctor, you'd probably come out worse than if you, <laughs> before. You know, medicine was not a highly developed art. They would bleed you, and of course, that was the worst thing you could do, uh, and, and make things worse than, than, than they were before. Uh, but uh, he's clearly aware Timothy is somebody, apparently, who uh, who had given up uh, wine, who he was drinking only water, and uh, this is a reminder here that you see that uh, you can go too far in these things. I mean, um, uh, you know, you have to asceticism is all very well, but uh, not to the detriment of your health. Um, and the, you know, we need to to bear this in mind because you hear about this from time to time. People go on diets and end up with bulimia and things like that. You know, it just goes really too far. And uh, so he warns against this. And then he says, well, some people's sins are conspicuous uh, and the sins of others appear later. Again, that's true. You see, some people are obviously not doing the right thing. Well, they're relatively easy to deal with. Um, But others, uh, you know, may be harder. So again, you have to be aware uh, of this. Then he talks about slaves, and I watch my time here. Um, he talks about slaves, and this is interesting too, because you often hear uh, people say, "Why didn't the early church condemn slavery? Uh, you know, why did they allow the slave system to continue and didn't really say much about it?" Well, again, several factors have to be borne in mind here. First of all, most of the slavery, and certainly the slavery that Paul and his and the early church would come across, was domestic slavery. People working in the home, so they were part of the household, uh, not sort of plantation-type slavery because they weren't really plantations in, in that sense. That's the first thing. The second thing, it was an economic thing, primarily. It certainly wasn't race-based or anything like that. Um, you know, it was, it, and people would sell themselves into slavery uh, for what we would today call social security reasons. Um, you know, again, remember, there's no social security system. So what some people, you know, it was easier. Um, I mean, they could assign themselves to a certain person. They had no particular ambition, no particular uh, aim in life. They just wanted to survive. So, of course, they sell themselves to or they, they sign on, the, you know, to a, a, a master and are basically taken care of. Um, you know, and that happened. Uh, more so than we uh, we realize today. And then, of course, there were people who were uh, slaves because they were captured in war or they were debtors or something. They didn't particularly want to be slaves um, and so on. So there was that too. I'm not suggesting that it was a, an ideal system or anything like that or that everybody wanted to be a slave. Um, but it wasn't as terrible as as we might think of it now. You know that well, it, it had its it had its compensations uh, as well. But of course, it caused a problem in the church because slaves become Christians and their masters are Christians. Then they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And how does that affect the way you operate? Um, you know, in your ordinary everyday life. Well. The modern comparison, of course, here is is not slavery, but employment. Uh, I mean, if my boss is a Christian 
and and you know goes to my church um, and I'm in the church well what difference does this make to our relationship you know and as we know this could get very complicated uh, because it might be the case that um, I I have a boss in my secular work but in the church I might have a, a position in the church that he doesn't have and therefore have some kind of authority over him somehow um, and, and this would be particularly the case you see in an in a society where people inherited businesses. I mean, if your father died and you were like 18 and you inherited the business, um, you know, you might have slaves who were 50. Uh, <laughs> you see what I mean? It's a, it's a very, very complicated system here. Uh, you have to think about all these things. And basically what Paul is saying is you mustn't use your Christian credentials uh, as a way of uh, influencing the, your behavior at work. Uh, in other words, you can't you you can't say to your boss, uh, "Well, you have to treat me like this because we're brothers in Christ." Um, uh, you know, uh, I mean, of course, uh, you're expected to treat people properly and so on, but you mustn't play that card um, as if it gives you special privileges or special uh, uh, rights and responsibilities. And this is something that we have to uh, be very careful about even now. Uh, you know, because how do we function uh, in this way? How do we respect? And what Paul is saying here is the employees need to respect their employer, need to respect their employer's rights as employers, and of course vice versa, uh, you know, and not say, oh, we're all Christians, it doesn't really matter, uh, because we're also all sinners. Well, I've run out of my time. We have to stop uh, there. But basically, the, the last few verses of this epistle, uh, just a reminder, Paul is saying to people, um, uh, you know, this is how we have to, uh, have to operate. We have to put into practice the principles that we have in the church, in our life uh, together. Uh, we must respect people. Uh, we must recognize who they are, what they are, and treat them accordingly. Uh, that... We're not all the same, uh, that there are differences, there are special needs uh, of different uh, categories of people, and we need to take all that into consideration uh, as we uh, you know, work out how we're going to live together. And what was true then is also true now, in a slightly different way maybe, uh, but still uh, you know, the basic principles are there. Recognize legitimate difference uh, in uh, a community of fellowship and then treat people uh, accordingly and properly. All right? Well, let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, thank you for this time that we've had together now, and I pray that you would help us be with us as we go our separate ways and guide us in all that we do, I pray, that we may uh, treat others as we would have them treat us, uh, that we may behave uh, in ways which are honoring uh, to uh, your name and that we may be guided uh, in difficult situations to know what the right way forward should be. And so we ask these things and we pray that you would give us wisdom uh, and guidance in the days ahead. For Jesus' name's sake we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.